0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. I think we can all stipulate that we're in a precarious moment in the relatively short history of American democracy. Even among those not following it on an hour-by-hour basis via an addiction to cable news, people are anxious. And so many on the left and the right are using tens of thousands of words to comment on the moment. But perhaps the only way to really understand it is through the sharp lens of contemporary American political history, particularly the years since the end of World War II. Our divisions, no matter how profound and how powerful, do not stand alone. They're not sui generis. They exist as a link to the broad scope of our contemporary political story. I would argue that without grasping that history, without understanding that the news is also what people have forgotten, that the moment is just noise. Sure, we can study history. Many great books have been written about the post war period, the Cold War, McCarthyism, the New Frontier, the Great Society, the Fall of the Soviet Union, the 60s, and mourning in America. But those that have lived through all of that, who have paid attention to both the players and the events of the past 75 years, are, I think, best qualified to try and figure out where we are today. Whether or not we have a future, or whether we're in the end game of America 1.0. My guest, Chris Matthews, has, in the best traditions of politics and American journalism, been there. If, as has been said, 50% of life is just showing up, Chris is more than halfway there. His personal and political journey is the backdrop for all that we're dealing with today, and he brings it all into bold relief in his latest book, This Country. It is my pleasure to welcome Chris Matthews back to this program to talk about his memoir, This Country, My Life in Politics and History. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. First of all, talk a little bit about your sense of the importance of understanding history and trying to make sense of where we are today.
1: Yeah, I think the uh, one of the um, elements in, in what's going on in our country today, especially January uh, 6th, is a class struggle. Uh, we don't like to talk about class in America or aristocracies or whatever, but there clearly is a delineation now between those who had higher education and those who didn't, who work with their hands or work as craftsmen. Uh, that seems to be what's driving a lot of the resentment toward the liberal uh, cultural elite, if you will. And, and if you look at, uh, it started with Joe McCarthy. It went through Patrick Buchanan. I guess it was all the way back to Father Coughlin and Louis- Huey Long the resentment of of working people toward the elite and they could be on the left. Usually the resentment is toward those on the left, but also against those who are just simply more educated. And that's, uh, that's profound today. I think if you look at the people who right now believe in the latest poll, that Donald Trump will be quote reinstated close quote this coming August, I don't think that will be among the higher educated people. I think those will be people working people who resent, uh, what they called it, a deep state or whatever. And I think that has a history which precedes Trump. And I think we have to understand that Trump is a great, perhaps uh, brilliant exploiter of American antipathy toward the elite, towards the mob at the gate, the rot at the top. Uh, those are the old phrases Robert Rice taught me the rot at the top and the mob at the gate. So they don't mm-hmm. like the immigrants coming into the country, the migrants, but they also don't like the well
0: educated elite who are running the country as they see it. Arguably, understanding the sense of history is just as important in looking at the global situation today.
1: Well, I think just in terms of uh, world power right now, um, understanding uh, on the Chinese side, we were their allies in World War II. And of course, they went communist in the late 40s. But the fact is that there is no natural antipathy between us and the Chinese. But I think there is sort of an antipathy between us and the Russians, which if you look at the end of the Cold War uh, and you look at the, the beginning of the Iron Curtain in the late 40s and you begin to understand that Russia's paranoia or reasonable paranoia about its own borders and its need to control Eastern and Central Europe to protect itself. And then you wonder about Soviet or Russian nationalism and whether it was more nationalism than ideology. I look at uh, Mr. Putin today, and I see him as a nationalist, but he's also a former KGB officer. And I wonder if Russian nationalism isn't as strong as ever. Perhaps today it's in a form of resentment against uh, the the West for having defeated it in the Cold War, resentment against NATO for having been the tool for doing that. And you wonder uh, whether the Russian influence in Angola, Mozambique, uh, Algeria, Cuba, uh, and elsewhere in our own hemisphere wasn't, in fact, an outreach of of Russian imperialism or Russian nationalism as much as it was an ideological uh, stretch and advancement, I must say, of communism.
0: Talk about how these things played themselves out and whether or not you and and your colleagues thought about these things back when you were in the Carter administration and when you were working for Tip O'Neill.
1: Well, certainly, um, back to when I was a cop on Capitol Hill, I was a patronage police officer on the Capitol Police Force, and I did learn a lot from those fellows, mostly West Virginia working guys, m- former military policemen in many cases. I would stand around with them and talk to them. I would try to learn from everybody. When I was in a Peace Corps in Africa, i try to learn from people. And one thing I, I learned is about the attitude of working people who didn't get a lot of breaks in this country, white people in this case, uh, a guy named Leroy Taylor from West Virginia pulled me aside one time, and I was the college kid on the police force. And he said, "You know why the little man loves his country?" And I said, "No." He said, "Because it's always God." And I thought that was profound. And I thought he's talking about a guy from West Virginia making very modest dowry, uh, a regular family, looking at the, the elite that would go to Ivy League schools or whatever, any any schools, higher education. And then saying, well, I don't have a lot of glamour in my life. I don't have really a lot of abundance of anything, but what I do have is a flag that I serve in the country I love. And I'm resentful of those who don't take that as heartfelt as I do. Those who seem to take it for granted. And there's some of that there today. Uh, These people who are with Trump think they're the patriots. They believe that in their heart, that they are the true Americans. Now, maybe they simply see themselves as the white Americans, but they certainly see themselves Put them under sodium pentothal, and they'll probably say, I'm a patriotic American. And uh, the part intellectually, I don't think they can really say that under sodium, sodium pentothal or truth yeah. serum. I don't think they can say Trump really won the election, but they may have talked themselves into it. But my pride in this country goes back to a couple of things. One is freedom. I really believe in it, obviously. We all do, I think, most of us. Personal freedom. The right to make choices in life about your religion, what you read in the papers, what you think politically, everything. And the right to vote, I think there's a great pride in this country that since 1788, we've been holding congressional races every two years, presidential races every four years. I'd like to brag vis-a-vis the French, they've got their fifth republic. We've got the one we started from, the first republic. And it's a great pride that we have had electoral democracy in this country all these years. And now, thanks to Trump, there are, there's a big chunk of Americana that doesn't believe in the elections anymore. They don't really believe in any results. And I think that's Trump's doing, I think that's his personal, uh, achievement, if you will, in his world, we don't trust our elections.
0: And using the sense of of the grand sweep of American politics that you've witnessed up close and personal these past 75 years and going through things like the turmoil of the 60s and the McCarthy period, which you mentioned before, and so much upheaval. Can we come out of this in ways that are similar to the ways that we've come out of other things? Or is there something different here because of the depth of it and because of the way it's covered on a 24-7 basis?
1: Well, Jeff, you've got a tough point there. It almost answers itself. I I think we've come through a lot of good evolutions. Uh, we won the Cold War. I was at the Berlin Wall when it came down and right. listening to people who confirmed what the stakes were, a young man said to me. When I asked him, what does freedom mean to him, he said, talking to you. The absolute denial of freedom in the Soviet bloc was real. When I was in South Africa and saw having worked in a small country called Swaziland, I was working right across the border from South Africa. We were surrounded on three quarters of our territory by South Africa. We were never allowed in as Peace Corps volunteers in that country. And, um, and to see that election in 1994 up front with bishop tutu standing with him as he voted he rise that some things do change for the better That they have black rule in south africa now um to see the whole freedom movement in africa away from colonialism i saw it in its afterglow we've seen the civil rights bill i keep thinking about the being about the, the u.s capitol and what a cathedral of democracy it is. that's where they signed but they agreed to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, mostly Republicans, in fact, in the US Senate, breaking the filibuster. It all happened there. Lincoln gave his inaugural address, his second inaugural, that beautiful oration about the, the way that the Civil War was really penanced for slavery, that what, what was taken by the whip was gonna be paid for it by the sword. And uh, so much happened there. Uh, I think uh, I think things turn around I do worry about polarization today that people only listen to their own thoughts being confirmed. My rule today is something I quoted in the book from John Lewis, the former Congressman and civil rights leader. He said, tell the the truth, the whole truth, even if it bothers your friends, tell the whole truth. Yes, you can go on television and you can give a good case for your side and use facts and be honest, but you're basically only telling a side of the story. You're using facts to make your case. Sometimes you got to step back and go, wait a minute, uh, if you change police performance and standards, yeah, they'll have a good result. But there also could be a tendency of the police force to pull back from risky situations, from tricky situations, because who wants to be the bad guy? And you might have the same situation with infrastructure. Yes, we need infrastructure, but be careful here. We're going to have a lot of inflation if we dump a couple trillion dollars into this economy right now with everybody bringing back their money they've been saving and all of a sudden they bring it out and start spending all that money that they do have in some cases and then on top of that you get all this new federal spending you could have inflation that'll destroy the biden administration easily. biden could go down in inflation it would cost it really hurt lyndon johnson in, in 66 it really hurt uh, jimmy carter who i worked for in 80 the market are very averse to inflation we've got to be careful so if you want to tell the whole story you can't just sell infrastructure you have to go wait a minute at a certain point there'll be a breaking point here and we're going to have perhaps galloping inflation. We don't know yet, but there's signs of it now. And, uh, and on policing, we knew we need police. We can't defund the police. We need to educate the police and discipline them. But we also be on their side in tricky situations. We can't say go into a situation where you might get killed and we're rooting for the other guy. What, are you kidding me, yes. you have to recognize the nature of a, it's like a public school teacher in a tough district. They they come in after all the social problems that led to that incident, all the domestic situations that led to that incident, they have to police. And we act like they're gonna solve the problems of the world with their gun? No, we're asking them to use their power judiciously and fairly. But we also have to understand that they have very difficult jobs and if they don't want to do those jobs, we're gonna have a higher crime rate because who wants to go into a club at two o'clock in the morning when there's people fighting with each other and drinking? And who wants to go into a domestic situation when there's husband and wives partners fighting with each other. These are dangerous situations apart from the racial issue and the aspects. So we have to be careful how we fine-tune all this.
0: Talk about your own personal perspective. So much of, of what you write about in this country are places that you've been, moments that you've participated in over the history of this period. Nowadays, you get to watch it a little bit further away. You get to see it from afar. You get a different perspective on it. Talk about that difference and how it plays out for you. Well, it's something you said a few minutes ago about uh, the movement of time.
1: And uh, sometimes when I was in Africa in the Peace Corps for two years, I would be reading the Atlantic Monthly to keep up. I may get an occasional copy of, the, of Time magazine or the New York Times Weekend Review. So you get, you'd get imp- impressions over time uh, interspersed with silences. So you see a, a transition, a pattern of things happening. And I think that's one thing not covering the news every night. I begin to see this, what's been going on since uh, the election of 2020, where you see a president two days later denying the results, or you see uh, two thirds of the Republican Party saying that Trump actually won, or you see the insurrection, and then you see General Michael Flynn saying, we should have a military takeover of the government. You see these point by point, and you draw the line through that, you say, my God, we say, pass this prologue, what's this a prologue to? Where are we going in this line?
0: and it's scary? Talk about that, those moments where it's scary and what you think about from your perspective.:
1: Well, it began from a long perspective of growing up under school desks. I mean, in the early '50s, we had a regular drill at my school that Catholic nuns were teaching. and we were told that when a certain alarm went off, a bell would off. We'd get under our little desks and would be told you have 15 minutes till basically the end of the world because Soviet bombers were going to strike with atomic weapons. And this was probably going to be, well, it was going to be a third world war and probably the end of civilization and life on this planet. That's how drastic it was. It was all tied together with current events and religion and everything else. And uh, of course, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis where people thought we were really facing, you know, an apocalypse. I mean, really, we didn't know where that was going because in that case, both sides had enough weapons to destroy at least the other half of the world. And so these were tricky situations, to put it lightly. But for a while there, we thought I'm uh, losing the Cold War. I'd, everybody who's young today, the millennials don't get this, but there was a time in the late 50s, we thought after Sputnik and Cuba and the Soviet military buildup, that we were on the losing side of history. It was not paranoid to think that, it was going on. The Russians were building up their economic strength. And when Khrushchev said, we're going to bury you, that wasn't considered an idle threat. People don't get this. I remember the great movie, North by Northwest, where Leo G. Carroll plays the CIA director, and he basically made a comment about, well, it looks like we're losing the Cold War. And that was just a fait accompli accepted as, nor, as a reasonable statement. And uh, it wasn't until basically the fall of the Berlin Wall we realized that if the Soviets couldn't control Eastern and Central Europe, they weren't going to control the world. But that took, And then, of course, the failure of the Moscow coup in August of 91, where Yeltsin courageously stood on a tank and faced down the Red Army. And that was the real end of the Cold War. And that made possible a lot of things in our country, like, for example, Bill Clinton being elected, the first non-soldier, really, to uh, to become president after World War II. All the others had been military veterans of one kind or another from World War II. So things changed. Uh, A lot of things changed after uh, the end of the Cold War.
0: When you look at politicians, elected officials today, particularly in Washington, and you know them all, you've seen them all come and go over the years, are you surprised by the seeming lack of of courage that we see today? Well,
1: I'm uh, appalled by uh, the failure of—well, I could do it on both sides, but there seems to be a real failure by people like Kevin McCarthy of California, the Republican leader in the House, to be leaders— I mean, he said the, the, election of 19, uh, the election of 2020 was clear that, uh, that Trump had lost and Biden had won. He was very clear on that, but he doesn't seem to act that way. He, he doesn't want to have an investigation of what happened on January 6th. He doesn't really want to rally the Republican Party to this sort of a post-Trump era. He's afraid of Trump. He's afraid of what Trump can do in primaries. He can go into a primary and knock off an incumbent Republican congressman or woman easily. And everybody knows that. So I'd say they live in fear of, of Trump, and that's a domestic threat to them. On the Democratic side, I think there's a lot of the moderates are not really speaking their minds in some cases. I don't know whether Chuck Schumer, the, the Senate Democratic leader, is worried about an AOC threat or not, but they're worried. They were, I think they're worried. I think the people that get the most media clout on the left and the right probably scare the uh, institutional leaders, the ones that have been elected to lead are afraid of those who haven't been elected to lead but have the lead in the media. Their ability to, uh, if, you see, if you read a newspaper article today, you inevitably read uh, something, a voice from the left or two or three voices from the left in that article about whatever the issue is before the Congress because they have the media access. They call up the reporters. Uh, the reporters tend to be liberals or progressives. They pick up on what the, the groups say it's, an, it's a microphone that AOC and the other members of the squad have at the ready all the time. And so they have an, out, an outsized version out there of their power. Uh, but it's there. And I think people like Schumer and the rest of the Democrats, Pelosi, the rest of them,
0: are very careful not to offend people on the hard left. But on the other side, of the spectrum, of course. Within the context of all of this to what extent is the media either exacerbating the problem or really have a bigger role to play in trying to solve some of the issues we've been talking about
1: well it's clearly easier to um point to the other side's problem uh the other side's error than it is to com- to compel uh the country toward a solution uh i look at the uh, division in the us congress it's so close People keep ignoring how close it is. That's the decisive factor. It's not Joe Manchin or Cinema from Arizona. The fact is it's a 50 50 U S Senate and almost a 50 50 U S house. And that's why there's a difficulty in legislating. It's, uh, we have to have an election. It's almost like Israel. We have to have an election which decides this. It's uh, if it's going to be 50 50 results, we're not going to get anything done. And, uh, That's where we are right now. And unfortunately, the tendency of history is for the midterm election coming up in 2022, it's for the opposition party to do well. So we might find ourselves with a new weaker administration from 23 to 24.
0: There is the sense that it's not for legislation anymore and not for doing what needs to be done for the American people, but really posturing and, and positioning and planning for the next election
1: that's the problem. I mean, Mitch McConnell's skill is in winning elections, not legislating.
0: And he always gets reelected against
1: whoever the Democrats throw at him. And uh, his, his job right now, pretty clearly to me, is to make sure Biden gets nothing done until now and next election, next November, next year, and then to run on three negative points. Meaning, they would normal. there's always three It's this time around, it'll be crime, prices, inflation, in other words, and the border. These guys, big three. It's like it was in the early 50s, it was communism, corruption, and Corona. Um, Acid abortion and amnesty back in the 70s. It's always true. This is a a, a tactic that goes back to the late 1940s with Mary Chotiner, who was Nixon's advisor. Right. We came up with the idea that the average voter can only have three ideas in his or her head when they go to vote. Make sure they're all about the opponent and make sure all three negative.
0: And you won the election. I mean, it's pretty crude, but it's effective. And finally, are you optimistic or pessimistic about what the future holds in the next few years?
1: My concern is a lack of political ambition,
0: which sounds odd.
1: We probably need more Obama's, more John McCain's more Mitt Romney's, more uh, Hillary Clinton's. We need people who really are willing to take the, pay the price of running for president or any office to stick their necks out there and be ambitious. I, I just don't see a lot of competition for public office these days. There are a lot of second raters out there, but there aren't really people who are really first class prospects for leading this country. I mean, I I I think it's become very dangerous to run for public office, right. uh, and I think that people don't want to do it anymore. They'd rather go make money in the equity market. <laughs> they just go make make a big shot out of yourself some other way than through politics. If you have an ego, use it somewhere else. Uh, I do think that's the problem. I I see so many state elections for senator with weak candidates, and I. That is depressing. People don't want to get into this business anymore of running for office and being exposed to criticism. It's just too, uh, too awful to run for office today. And I think that's the problem. I mean, very few people want to stick their neck into that
0: their head into that. Chris Matthews, his memoir is This Country, My Life in Politics and History. Chris, I thank you so very much for spending time with us today.
1: It's, the be- you're the best. I've never heard anybody so school than what the challenges we face than you, Jeff. You you know the story. You know what we're facing, I think.
0: Well, thank you very much for the kind words, and, and you do as well. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. Thank you so much for the time.